The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Peter 3, 9-22. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do, not, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought to safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, welcome this morning. Hey, everybody. In front of me and to the far right, over there in the shade, it's like little continents of shade. Um, It's good to see you way over there. My name is Stacy Croft. I'm the pastor here at at Christ Pro's Music Row, and I do love it when we meet outside. Um, It's such a sweet time together. And uh, and I was joking. I was like, there's a nice line. There's going to be a bigger line when I get up to preach, probably, Um, all of you, as someone said earlier. But... uh, so glad you could come. Uh, we don't typically do this um, outdoors, but when we get a chance to, we try and pick the hottest day of the year. To do, I mean, the uh, best, prettiest day of the year to do this. So to be out here with you. You know, I don't know uh, where in your life where you say things like, uh, this is living. Or, man, this is the life. Uh, or, man, this is, these are good, good days. <clears throat> uh, I don't know what part of your life, maybe you look back, maybe that's something in the past, maybe that's something you're looking forward to and hoping. We were as a family talking about kind of like some, uh, I think one of our boys asked uh, a question about like, what's something that we really like enjoyed recently or something that we look back at? And we were talking about when we all got to go to Disney World together and how fun that was. And you you go and go and it's so fun. And then you come back and you're like, you know, you go and play and you ride rides and you do all this stuff. And then you come back and it's like, you're like right back into the grind of things. And that's when you look back and you go, man, that was, that 
was really fun. Um, and then you kind of go, man, that's, is that living? Uh, this passage has something in it that's really interesting when it says uh, good days in it. It talks about having the good days in our life. And what does that really mean? Uh, does it mean ha- being happy? Uh, I remember seeing a documentary on Netflix some time ago about, it's called Happy. That was just the name of it. It's very interesting. And it's actually observing what we believe is happiness. And it kind of goes around the world, actually, to see that in different uh, areas of the world, uh, de- depending on socioeconomic background and such, and what the definition of happiness is, and what we would even say, what is a good day? What are good days? And it, it's, it's interesting in some ways what you would think. It doesn't actually matter in some ways that some of the poorest places in the entire world are some of the happiest and most content. And yet, what does it mean to have good days and a good life? This passage is really opening that up for us. We've been looking and walking in, through a letter of First Peter. It's a letter that Peter, even if you're maybe here and you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Peter, that name, uh, he's one of the original disciples and apostles. He wrote two letters in the 60s AD. And when he wrote these, he was really writing to a group of Christians that were um, really making sense of what does it mean to live in the culture? What does it mean to live particularly in Rome in the first century? And even if they were at first, Roman citizens, now they would call themselves Christians or followers of Christ. They didn't even use Christians in that time. They called themselves the way or followers of Christ. What does that look like? And Peter, what he does often is he'll take the theology of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and he'll take the practice of what it means to do the following of Jesus and he'll make them go boom, seamlessly. He'll say, who you are, if you say you follow Jesus, should translate immediately into what it looks like for you to live and follow him. And this passage in particular talks about doing good in the midst of what's hard. What does it mean to actually do good, have a good life, live a good life in the midst of what is difficult? Two words that you probably saw all through that or heard or listened to that passage, it's in your bulletin, is... Uh, one is suffering and one is good, doing good. <laughs> How do those things go together? So we're going to look at this, this passage in three parts, briefly. We're going to look at what does it mean to do good? What does it mean to have a defense of good? And what is the source of our good? So doing good, defending good, and then the source of that good. You know, uh, in the very beginning of this passage... It talks about, in verses uh, 10 and 11, and even 9 really says, Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from every evil and do good. There's a lot of doing good here. And, and when he says good, we have to kind of define our terms. What in the world does that mean? For a Jewish man like Peter to write this in the first century, some could first um, you know, read that and say, does he, is he kind of referring back to a kind of a Jewish list of laws? 
or maybe a legalism or a moralism or, or a nicety of what it meant to live as a good Jewish person. <clears throat> but when Peter's speaking to this, he, this is what's interesting. There are only 12 times in the New Testament, in the entire New Testament, where it talks about doing good. Four of those 12, a third, are in just the letter of 1 Peter. Peter wants us to know that doing good is really, really, really important, but it's more than just manners. It's more than the nicety. It's more than just doing the little things of being kind or nice throughout the day, which it does include that, but it, it's more than that. It means something bigger. It means a well-doer. In fact, the Greek word, and I, and I took off books off my shelf, even I do typically, I don't say this just to be kind of geeky and nerdy, but to study these Greek words and what these mean, unpack and help us know deeper and more fuller what this means. It's the word uh, agathopeo. It means to do good, and it means a well-doer. And when I was digging a little deeper into this, it was connected in Greco-Roman times, that Greek word, to what it meant to be a good citizen, a virtuous and good citizen who had met a high quality in the community. And so when Peter draws this word out, they would recognize that because so many of the people Peter was talking to were also Roman citizens. But now they would identify themselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And how did those two things mix? When I was in uh, Washington, D.C. this, um, oh man, a couple weeks ago on a trip, I was a <clears throat> chaperone and, uh, for my son's sixth grade trip, which, yeah, it was, it was a blitz. It was a lot of fun, but it was very tiring. And uh, one of the places that we got to go, if you've ever been to D.C., this was actually my first time, so I was like, you know, this was awesome to me, was the National Archives, where they have the um, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all of them right there in front of you. And if you've ever been in there, it's like you're going into kind of a, a giant bank vault, uh, where you walk in and you have to kind of wind your way up obviously a lot of security going in and then there are these giant iron gates i mean they're just as tall as this tree and and they're open and then you step up into this room that has them out and you know i of course, some of the, the kids that were there, some of the students were like, is this like national treasure? Do they like go down? And, and well, I don't know if they do that. They wouldn't answer any questions, but, but they were like, just go see. So you walk around and you're seeing all these original documents. And if you ever read and take time to, you know, go reflect on your history, uh, U.S. history, one of the biggest phrases that happens over and over, particularly in our documents of our country, our founding documents, is doing good. It's actually, what does it mean to do good? And yet, when our country first started, there was also th that doing good, but what does it mean to bring in that individualism that our country does, does uphold, that we know and what you've probably heard a lot, but how do those two things jive? That, that's a real difficulty. And what Peter's doing is actually taking doing good and flipping it on its head and saying, it's not about you just doing good. It's about something else you're reflecting, a citizenship that is higher and greater than yourself, that isn't just purporting your own sphere of individual pursuit of happiness. It's actually doing good because you're reflecting the character of someone higher and showing that this world was made for more. 
When Peter draws this out in his word here, he's not stating it just as his word, but as God's. What does it mean we're reflecting? To do good. He draws this out in verse, um, uh, especially in this kind of quote area you see. That's from Psalm 34. And he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. He kind of lists a few things for us there. And really practically what he gets at is to say, hey, first, doing good means that it's not just about you trying to make things okay in your sphere of influence, but it's about actually engaging and seeking to reverse the evil that exists. See, when he talks about good, a well-doer in terms of a citizen of heaven, it says, do not repay evil for uh, evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That's an activity. That's a word of going forward. So the first real important thing to understand is good in terms of what the Bible's saying, different than any other document. It's saying that you not only see evil, you experience it, but you actually engage it and seek to reverse it. That's a pretty powerful thing in our hands. It's saying that anything that we see that's out of contrary of how this world is supposed to be, that we engage and reverse what we see is wrong and messed up in this world. And in fact, he uses the word bless. And sometimes we use that, you know, of course, we may have seen this before a lot, hashtag blessed. We see that on uh, social media a lot, or maybe you've heard that, but th- that word typically is thrown around like, oh, I'm so hashtag blessed, I-, I got to go to the Poconos, and no, 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 it's like, well, that's not actually what it's saying. Uh, to bless or be blessed is to actually uphold. It's actually to make larger. So when the Bible says, bless God, I'm going to bless God, like went from the Psalms, it actually, interestingly enough, Psalm 34 begins with, David blessing God, what he's saying, how do you bless God? It's saying, you are magnified. So when we're blessing someone and doing good, we're actually magnifying them. And here's the kicker. He's saying we're supposed to do this even in the face of suffering and evil towards us. That is radically different from any other document that I think we could read. That to be blessed isn't so much that drives us how thankful for what we are or what we have, but here's the real thing. What being blessed or blessing is, and especially connected with God, is how deeply you are really loved. When you bless God, then when David does that, and we recognize that we're recognizing how loved we are, not just for the things God gives us, but for how he treats us. So in order to bless others, we, that love goes out. You're not going to try and get love from people. We're going with the love that we have. That's the goodness that's so deep. It's so much more profound. It's in, engaging evil with good. You can't engage evil with good if you don't do it out of a heart that knows that you're loved. You will seek to be that. Some of the most profound places I'm sure you've felt, even in the smallest ways when you've done good in the face of evil or, or with chaos. It doesn't even have to be radically huge places of evil, but just ways that where you see people struggling or hurting or needing and you lean in, not even maybe even knowing that person. 
I have been shocked over the last, gosh, year. The amount of times when people that I barely know or have just met, and I even ask them simple questions when they look distressed of, hey, are, are you okay? How are you doing? How many times I've had this person come back to me that I've, again, hardly met, barely know, and say, gosh, thank you. You have no idea what it meant just for you to ask that question. And I know that sounds so simple, but people don't, people live, we typically want to live in our own sphere of influence, our own preservation of our own life. What this is saying is engaging. Where is it? Seeking it out. And notice, it says two really quick facts here. One is our tongue, and two is the pursuit of peace. One is the way that we speak, that words are everything. They mean so much. Listen to what it says. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, of all places Peter could have drawn out, he draws out from there of someone speaking. And you know as well as I do how much words have formed us and continue to. The words that form us in so many ways. I have such an insecurity, and I'll say this up front, I have such an insecurity about my writing, and the reason I do is I remember being in college, writing papers, and the professor had a a big opportunity that I had in college to say, hey, let me help you craft this. I remember sitting in her office, her looking me in the face and saying this, do you read at all? (laughs) Uh, uh, Yes, me me don't think good. Um, What? That phrase has rung in my head for so many years. I remember it now. I'm telling it to you now. And I've been out of college for a long time. But it still inflicts the way that when I go to a computer to type something or I literally write out something on a notepad that I'm consistently thinking of those words that have taken away from me. And yet on the other end, how much do they give to us? They also speak of blessing. God gave us a tongue for a reason. And I remember uh, one of the greatest illustrations I heard of what the tongue is, is that from a pastor years ago, he said, it is the bucket that dips into the well of the heart to draw out. It really is. It dips in and draws out what is there. God gave us the tongue there for healing and blessing. The, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Psalms is another one. This actual section in the middle that, that Peter quotes from the Psalms is a wisdom part of the Psalms. It's actually wisdom of saying, how do you live the good life? The first place it goes is with our tongue. Not only negatively, but positively. Language is so powerful because even Proverbs talks about that we feed other people by the words that we give them. Doing good means what are we speaking? That we're active, that we're not only guarding from things, but we're actually speaking into the good. We're engaging where people are by giving words. It feeds character. It feeds our own character. I mean, you know as well as I do, if you're, you're from your parents, <laughs> the things, the tapes that you roll in your head of the things that they said and didn't say and what you wish they said and what, they, what you still hold that they said, things that are so powerful. This is why therapy and, and relationships that, that dig into us, where, where, that we have places where we can speak and work through language 
and draw it out is so important because that is going directly into the evil. And oftentimes we think, oh, if we're experiencing something, we shouldn't say it. But actually, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to draw it out and have our words be drawn out because it feeds, it nourishes, it provides. And it also says that we're supposed to seek peace. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. How interesting is that? Not only seek peace, but pursue it. Um, it's been amazing over the last two and plus years, and I've mentioned this a couple times, where we've been flooded out of our house, and we're actually just now being able to move back in, which is amazing. I, I actually, some of you have been so kind to ask, how, it, how is it? And it's just like this weird fog of living in such a place for so long, and now in this new place, and feeling so overwhelmed and humbled and grateful for it. And our general contractor said something to us a couple days ago. As he's walked with us through this, he's a friend and has done this, and he also is, is um, a Christian. He follows Jesus, you know, overtly says that he follows Jesus. He said something so interesting as we just thanked him profusely. You know what he said? He goes, this is what we do. This is what we do. And what he was saying, obviously, to us is, this is what we do as someone who follows Jesus. Who calls us when he's out of town to say, how are you doing? What do you need? This is what you should do. This is what you need to do. This is what we do. As if to make this statement of, this is how peace works. You know what? The word peace is shalom. And I'll probably quote him a couple times today, but Dr. Tim Keller, who has formed me uh, immensely just by his ministry over the years, who just recently passed away of cancer. One of the things he drew out was the illustration of this piece in the Bible talks about it's like a fabric. And what sin has done and what evil and the curses are is this almost like a quilt or blanket you're sitting on. If you look at it and there are those pulls in it and if there's tattered parts of it, that's what it's like. But peace is actually taking those, those strands and beginning to reweave those together. To weave those open holes, to bring actively back together the fabric of what this world is meant to be and the way God has made it. That's peace. And that's what my, my general contractor said in the smallest phrase of what he saw in complete tatter and a house destroyed. And yet he said, and for as many months, week, days, weeks, months, and even years, said, this is what we do. I cannot tell you how humbling that is for me how that one phrase has taught me. What does it mean to seek peace and good and pursue it and not give up on it? And you know what's interesting? He doesn't, Peter doesn't stop there. He says in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a defense. 
doing good is one thing, but we also need to be ready and have a defense. In fact, when it gets to that line of always being prepared to have a defense, it's actually a, a very formal phrase, the word apologia. And I don't know if some of you have actually heard this word before. It comes from the language of what's called apologetics. It's actually a study of the defense of the Bible and Christian faith. Uh, and apologia is not just used in like courts or law, but it's actually, he's taking it out of those formal settings for us to think about how do we actually become good thinkers and those with good conduct with good. That we're called to do good, but here's the defense of good. To make a defense is really important. And I'm going to get a little teachy here for a minute, because I think this is really important in drilling down on what, what Peter is saying, that there are two parts of this. And again, this is where Tim Keller has helped me think through this, that there are things that are, that are theoretical or theological defeaters, and there are personal ones. If you look in this passage, the theoretical ones are making a, uh, uh, being, always being prepared, verse 15, to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Literally just someone saying, hey, why do you do what you do? Why do you follow what you follow? I've heard so many stories um, of people that are a part of what's called the National Institute of Faith and Work which is a part of our church and a great ministry that helps integrate faith and work where they take on a project where they have to see, uh, dark, they have to bring light into darkness. It's called a, a Gotham project. And oftentimes the quote coming back when they finish the project and they present it to their superior or their coworkers is, hey, what made you do this? Why do that? And now we don't often think of that, right? We don't think about that. It's not just a verse that we throw out. It's how are we bringing order to chaos? How are we bringing blessing to curse, even in those places? But having a defense. And then the personal side is, listen, he talks about this. He says, and yet doing it with gentleness and respect. There's a thing called defeaters that um, Dr. Keller uh, created years ago when he talked about this. He said, these are the sound bites that many of us have heard when people say, hey, you're a Christian, this is what they think, right? Uh, they, they may think, well, you're bigoted, or maybe you're narrow-minded, or unintellectual, or maybe you have a certain political view, or maybe you have this kind of thing. It, it, it's whatever comes up as a defeater, and it's not just the apologetics of, you gotta really know Greek. That's not what Peter's getting at. None of, most of the people he's writing to hardly knew how to, uh, how to spell or even were highly educated. What he's saying is, how are you actually having a defense for the hope that's in you? Not defend defensive, but being able to answer, being able to speak. And not, it's not a one-shot deal. It's not like this kind of thing. It's like, I got the answer for everything. I think most of us here think we need to have certain degrees, theological degrees. And by the way, because I have one doesn't mean I can answer all the questions. I used to do a funny thing when I was a campus minister uh, called Stump the Chump. A couple of, some of you here were actually, we used to come to that and we would meet on the corner over here and uh, it was Stump the Chump and I was definitely the chump. And it wasn't a thing of like, what kind of question can you stump me with? It was more of, hey, 
Let's bring our questions and actually talk about it. I had people bring a book, uh, the Book of Mormon, and I would open the Bible, and they'd open Mormon, and we'd just talk about it. I had people come that were followers of Jesus and say, I just don't know how to reconcile what I'm hearing in class with this. I had people that were from all over the Hey, and you know what we need to do more of? Is have those discussions. We need to be prepared to have those, but it's not a one-shot thing. It takes time. It's relationships. It's knowing people. It's entering in. That's why Peter begins with, hey, there's a reversal of doing good and being a citizen of this world and engaging it and then having the defense, right? It's not being defensive and saying, hey, we got to fight against everything that we hear. That's not what Peter's saying at all. Peter's saying, you're living in it. Learn the hope that's within you. A hope is joy. How does it come off? As Blaise Pascal said, he said it beautifully. He said this, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. The cure for this is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Two, make it attractive and make good people wish it were true. And then third, show that it is. How are we making that defense? So let's talk about those two things. The theoretical ones. What are theoretical ones the defense come back like? Again, this may sound a little more teachy than preachy, but how do we identify them? These are most of the questions that come to us where Christianity has different, no, not Christianity, the Bible, let's put it this way. Not the Christianity we all just have in the back of our brain, but how does the Bible may have different definitions on our desires? Sexuality, reality, personhood, peoplehood, jobs, work, life. It has things to say about it. And it sheds light on those, on our love and limits. So how do we deal with that? How do we answer those questions? The personal ones are more of those are charges against Christian behavior. This is where gentleness and respect are so important. Because it's not about winning the argument. This is about when I was walking around in D.C. and looking at every, in every museum, and it wasn't like a, an argument against Christianity, but every now and then I would hear or read of a drop of where Christianity was used in colonialism or in slavery or in the Holocaust Museum, or in places where it's just dropped every now and then of it was used in this way. And yes, there are not just in large ways, but in personal ways that many of us, and maybe many of you here, have been bruised or hurt or burned personally, not theoretically, not just the Bible, but how someone just treated you, how the church handled you. And I want to say that we, the church is messy. And I have some of that hurt myself. So how do we react to that? Here's what Peter gets at. What he wants us to see is, he wants us to see that, that first, that our hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Do you, do you recognize where people are? Are they struggling with more of a theological, theoretical? I don't know, it's not this clean. But, or are they struggling with more of a personal side of that? 
to make a defense of what's good and live and lean in. If you try and address someone where they're hurt personally with something theoretically, like just a verse or some Christian type phrase, you know how much that misses. And vice versa. If you try and just lean in and, and say, and, but you're not addressing the, the actual questions that people are asking, that they want to know what do you think of this? What does the Bible say here? And we're missing. We need to think about how do we wisely step into this world and bring the good. And the biblical approach is this, that we're honoring Christ. The difference of doing good and then the defense of good isn't the defense of what we think we need to do, but that we're honoring Jesus. That we're bringing Jesus. See, the, the grace that needs to be applied to how per, people are personally hurt by Christian and, and Christianese and Christianity and the, and the theology of what needs to be addressed in those places where people have real questions and the truth that needs, the grace and truth. Do you know what Jesus was called? He was called the grace and truth, the light of the world. <laughs> And to honor Jesus means we're upholding him when we address these things, when we walk into them. Grace of Christ meets personal objections. The truth of Christ meets theological and theoretical ones. And we need to present both. But here's the question. Where is the source of this? Where does it come from? This table here gives us a huge piece of that. And I know if you were like me, you were reading the last part of this passage, and you're like, uh, what is happening? <laughs> uh, if I had a whole, maybe two, three weeks, we could go through that. But I'm going to go straight to it. There are a lot of viewpoints, a lot of understanding, and a lot of things of these last few verses, verses 18 to 22, that really can be confusing or strange or hard. But to go straight at it, what this is saying is that Christ suffered, and when it says he went to present things to the spirit, spirits is not human beings. The language in Greek of spirit is one that has been used in the scriptures in, in Greek places to describe non-humans, that is fallen angels or even demons. And what this passage is getting at is that Jesus' power in his suffering and proclamation isn't into some strange purgatory-like place, but that they understood even in Genesis chapter 6, the beginning of the Bible, thousands of years before Peter wrote, that Jesus was active and Jesus proclaims his dominion even in the lowest of places. That his proclamation isn't just the good news to demons, it's to say, I am in charge. And you see this throughout the Gospels. So that when he's proclaiming this, it's like, where does the good come from? It can only come from the one who can actually address evil in the eye, <laughs> can descend to the most evil place that we would know of, and can actually come back out of it again so that we might never have to even taste it. See, the source of our good has to be something more than us. It has to come outside of us. This is why you read 
we struggle with the evil and the good that we go back and forth. And yet, what is the source of our good? It can't be that we just herald it and go and try and be better, but it has to come from someone who actually has addressed evil at its core, who was even swallowed up in death and actually came back out again. See, if you wanna know what this table is, this table is the most powerful illustration of good, overwhelming evil. See, this table is actually speaking to the body and blood of Jesus. When we think of body and blood, we think of things that, that are harsh and difficult and dark. And yet Jesus willingly gives himself for it. And yet it has to be more than an illustration. Because like it says, baptism here, they weren't saved by the baptism, but it recognized that their conscience needed to be pointed to God. See, this magnifies God. This takes Jesus and makes him larger. It doesn't, just by taking this bread and this wine and juice, it, it doesn't actually make you a Christian any more than sitting on this lawn makes you one. But what does is by us looking to the one when it says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is sitting at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. You know what that means? We can go in peace. That means we don't have to fear. That means the good that we go with against the evil can't lose. <laughs> It means the game has been won and we're being put in and there's no way we can lose it. It means we go behind the victor, the one who is not only good himself, but the source of it that encourages us. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to God.